Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Daniel. And I'm Simon. And today we're sitting down with Darren Asamoglu, professor of applied economics at MIT. His work covers numerous topics from political economy to labor economics to development. He's written five books, Why Nations Fail, The Narrow Corridor, Epilogue from uh, Introduction to Modern Economic Growth, Introduction to Modern Economic Growth, and Economic Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy. His work has also been published in the Journal of Economic Growth, the Economic Journal, the American Economic Review, the Journal of Political Economy, Esquire, and Foreign Policy, to name a few. To put it bluntly, few could rival the breadth of his Google Scholar page. Thanks so much for sitting down with us, Professor Samoglu. It's really great to have you on campus. And one of the first things we want to start um, in this interview is asking you what made you want to be an economist in general, given we are a very strong economic student on campus. And why did you choose to focus your research on the interaction between institutions and long-term growth? Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Simon. It's uh, great to be here with you. Uh, to be honest, the reason why I got into economics is actually to study exactly the topics that you mentioned. I became interested in the interaction, interplay between politics and economics when I was in high school. Uh, I was growing up in Turkey at the time, which was struggling with uh, uh, economic problems, unemployment, inflation, but also suffering under a dictatorship. And I wanted to understand the relationship between the politics and economics, and uh, I decided to study those things. Little did I know that economics wasn't really about those topics at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, but I still enjoyed economics when I started studying it. <clears throat> and only after, you know, I finished my undergraduate, my master's, and uh, and and almost my PhD that I returned to these issues and uh, and started. Uh, delving into them. So it's been sort of a full circle back for me in some sense. You've written a lot for many different audiences, uh, from kind of general audiences to uh, very academic ones. What's your approach to communicating complex empirical models in a manner that is accessible for people who don't have a PhD? You know, I think it's, uh, it's actually one of the things that's been a very steep learning curve for me to write for different audiences. As an academic, you are steeped in academic debates and you write for other professors or graduate students. And it's a specific language. It's drier. It's not as much about the history or the context. It is technical. But at some point, I started realizing that these issues are of general interest and should be exposited and explained to a broader audience. And so it was a... Uh, uh, it, it was a process trying to to get that, and I'm not sure I got it already. <laughs> uh, I still work on it all the time. But at the end, if you are trying to explain an idea that is clear, it is in a given context that will resonate with people, which many ideas that are motivated by the real world would have that feature anyway, then I think it's quite feasible to explain that to a non-technical audience. Uh, you know, technicalities matter. Sometimes you want to check intuitions with mathematics. You definitely want to look at the data. And for that, you want to use the best statistical techniques. But to communicate the essence of the idea, those things are secondary in some sense. And, and I think uh, you can try to do it in a productive way and uh, undergraduate students, people who are non-economists uh, or follow the news, I think 
all of those are great audiences to try to talk about these issues. And, and I also think that while you start engaging with these audiences that tend to have uh, more like, you, you sort of become a popularized figure. You start becoming a sort of everyday household name. Your, your book certainly is. Um, and this obviously has a lot of responsibility as an, as an academic that what you have to portray is, is really true. But at the same time, it also leads to the question that uh, since the offset of the pandemic, that sometimes economists have been accused of overstepping their bounds by wading a little bit into epidemiology or, or sometimes like more political issues. So what is your perspective on this phenomenon? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, I would say that I am not a household name, that's for sure. <laughs> but but be, leaving, beyond, uh, the, uh, leaving that aside, the conversation is more important than the facts or the perspectives. There is no academic or no public intellectual who can claim that they know for sure what is right and what is wrong. The key about science and social science included in this is that it's dynamic. It changes. New facts emerge, new perspectives emerge. So I don't think any public intellectual should be speaking about what is known with 100% certainty, but they have to broaden the conversation and make sure that certain aspects of that conversation are accurately respect, uh, reflected to, to a broader public. And in that spirit, I think, uh, for people to engage in the public conversation is a productive one. And that public conversation often goes beyond field boundaries. If you are an economist, I don't think you can stay away from politics. Many of the questions of import in the economic arena have implications for politics and are often constrained or influenced by political factors. That's essentially the uh, center of a lot of the work that I've been doing on long-term development and institutions. But also in, uh, in the question of the pandemic, you know, I think you cannot avoid the issue of what is going to happen with infections or how to contain them when you are talking about the macroeconomy. So it's understandable that many economists had to get engaged with these issues. But again, the issue that's important here is not to speak with certainty, but reflect what is known and what is not known with humility. Mm -hmm. And uh, following a little, a little bit up on that, what are the main problems you think that economists should fully interrogate and that they haven't yet, um, more specifically among the, the big picture economists, um, the real questions that they should really ask themselves? I, I would say the topic that's at the back of my mind over the last several years is whether we are thinking about inequality the right way. Economists have been writing and discussing inequality for centuries. That is not a new issue. But we are going through a particularly heightened period of inequality. And the way that economists talk about that is mostly about consumption inequality, sometimes about income inequality, sometimes about wealth inequality. And the question is whether those are the most important aspects of it or whether other dimensions of inequality, for example, social status, where the contribution of different individuals comes from and how they are respected, those issues, I think, have wide-ranging implications for 
the economics profession and for public policy. And I think it is something that a number of people are starting to grapple with. Uh, let's transition to talking a bit more about the details of your work. In Why Nations Fail, you use a lot of interesting examples to discuss how institutions uh, determine current growth. Uh, what's the best historical counterexample you can think of that contradicts your argument? And what is your response to that? Well, that's a hard question because I have to come up with a counterexample yeah. <laughs> myself. You know, I think the most major counterexamples that are sometimes offered are those where institutions appear to be similar and there are big divergences. So one favorite example of those who want to emphasize, for instance, cultural factors would be north of Italy versus south of Italy. And the argument goes that institutions are broadly the same, but the south has a very different culture. And because of that culture, it's poorer and it's also been diverging from the north of Italy for, for a while. Now, I think there is both some truth and some uh, inaccuracy in this portrayal, and, and digging a little bit into it might be useful. I'm not sure whether this is what you had in mind in, yep. in terms of your question, but exactly. <laughs> uh, I think the truth is that if we have a broad enough definition of culture to include social norms, issues of where people look for approval, for respect, what is what they view as acceptable and unacceptable. I think those things obviously matter, and they matter for institutions as well. If you don't have a supporting set of norms and expectations, democracy wouldn't work. But it is, in my mind, incorrect, first of all, to think that institutions are defined at the national level. Most of the institutions that matter for people's lives are at the local level. Uh, how does your municipality work? Whether you're thrash is correct, correct, collected, or whether the police officers in your neighborhood harass you or help you. Uh, so those are very local and they matter a lot across jurisdictions within a country. But secondly, those institutions, whatever they are, are not independent of the norms and expectations at the local level. So for instance, you cannot understand the South without the mafia. Mm -hmm. Is mafia a cultural phenomenon? No, not so much. It's really very much a uh, an institutional phenomenon, a historical phenomenon. I have work, for example, that traces a lot of the big expansion of the mafia to the fact that there were, uh, you know, proto-socialist movements in uh, the 1890s that landowners in the south of Italy, in Sicily, uh, found very threatening and couldn't turn to the state to suppress these uh, demands and uprisings because the state was pretty weak mm -hmm. in Sicily. So they contracted with a burgeoning mafia movement who played the role of their armed gang, and that was a decisive moment in the expansion of the mafia. So you see, if you look at it that way, you know, obviously mafia shapes Sicilian culture, but it is itself a an outcome of a particular political process in a given historical context. So all of these things, you have to view them as historically determined, jointly determined in, mm -hmm. in, that, in that light. So following up on that sort of idea of historical institutions that occur through time and that make up 
the future. So in the case of the mafia, the 1890s, something happened there that made the mafia occur in the, um, the following decades. So currently, it's, it's hard sometimes to look at the future and predict the future because that is a very risky business. Um, but what parts of today's world do you view as particularly strong institutions that will be vital in sort of predicting a future? Well, right now, I would say I can't really give a very good answer to that because I view our current era as a critical juncture in the sense that James Robinson and I defined in Why Nations Fail, a period in which existing institutions are not up to the task of dealing with the current challenges, and each country is going to diverge in a different way, depending on how they respond to the challenge, how they restructure or fail to restructure their institutions. I think there's very much an element of that because of the inequality, because of the increasing role of a few tech firms in the lives of everybody, the pandemic, the international context, all of those make our period really pregnant with change uh, and, and how that's going to change what is going to work will turn out to be strong institutions, I think only time will show. I worry that US institutions are not showing the strength that one would have hoped. But will you say European ones <coughs> survive this onslaught better? We'll see. You've, you mentioned uh, before that oftentimes institutions occur at the local level and that's really can drive local uh, local growth. Uh, let's kind of do go to the exact opposite, though. Uh, how do international t institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, or the UN fit into your thesis about the term determinants of growth? Well, I think they are clearly very important, and so is the rest of the mm -hmm. international system. <coughs> Cold War, competition between US and China, what's going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine today. Mm -hmm. You know, in some sense, uh, <coughs> it is a fair criticism of both Why Nations Fail and Narrow Corridor that we did not engage with international dynamics fully. That was purposeful. Uh, there was already enough for us to tackle. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to think of the international factors as shocks or shifters. So the colonial experience, obviously, as an external factor, completely shapes how a colony's future is going to play out or invasion or threat of invasion is going to have those effects. But they were not, in some sense, fully internalized in the context of our study because we didn't worry as much about how different countries are playing against each other and how their choices of institutions are going to influence the institutions of other nations around the world. And today, it's clear that those are central. And... <coughs> in some sense, what the 21st century will entail will depend very strongly on how China and US cooperate on some matters and how they compete on others. So uh, those are clearly issues that we have to think much more about. And there's a huge discipline of international relations that partly thinks about those things. But in some sense, the international relations discipline for uh, despite its success in certain things, does uh, makes the opposite mistake in some sense to the one that we do. So they don't necessarily 
incorporate what go, what goes on in terms of internal dynamics, internal conflicts in countries and their institutional path on the international domain. So I think those things may need to be brought together much more organically in the future. This is just a very small question. <coughs> um, it's a very broad topic, but I just want to your very concise sort of viewpoint on it. Um, throughout history and, and throughout uh, your book, you mention a lot um, about how everything is sort of centralized. Information is centralized, money is centralized, everything tends to be really centralized. And given the current sort of trend towards decentralization that started with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and right now goes to a little bit more than that um, with the decentralization of, of, of information through the internet and all this different sort of shifts, do you see that changing your thesis um, in how nations will continue to grow? Well, I mean, the way I would say, and this is sort of, uh, <clears throat> an essential part of the narrow corridor, you need a balance between centralization and decentralization. Lack of centralization would mean lack of state institutions that can provide public goods or resolve disputes. But lack of decentralization in the extreme would be uh, an, uh, an edge case of despotism or tyranny. So you need to, to have a balance. And that balance is difficult to strike. It's also fraught with inequalities and instabilities. So I believe that many of the decentralization tools that we have have great utility. For instance, uh, you know, the promise of the internet or, the, or wikis or social media was to democratize communication and journalism, and that hasn't worked out. And in fact, when you look at it, <clears throat> despite the promise of decentralization, you see they're usually centralized. So I don't know whether Bitcoin or blockchain are going to be truly decentralized or they're going to be dominated by a specific type of vision or a specific type of company's power. I think those are all to play for. But absolutely, I think we do need more technological tools for decentralization as well. For instance, encryption, I think, is one of the most powerful tools that we can have against censorship and against government control. Uh, we already see <clears throat> its use in places like Russia and Ukraine or against uh, censorship, but we also see it's not very powerful in many instances. Uh, encryptions can be broken. Companies always compromise with authorities. So decentralization also needs to be embedded in a particular institutional context. Um, your research also covers issues of automation. As recently as 2020, you found evidence that the introduction of more automated workforce reduces employment and wages in a given metropolitan area. How do you envision uh, this shift towards automation in the workforce in the developed world interacting with the growth-determining institutions that you've discussed in your other... Well, I think that goes to the center of the issue of inequality that I talked about. You know, if you look at the U.S. economy, this isn't one of the periods in which it has the fastest productivity growth, but it is a period of decent productivity growth. A lot of that comes from automation. But at the same time, automation has decimated many of the occupations that were the bedrock of middle-class America. Office jobs, uh, blue-collar jobs on factory floors. And as a result, if you compare median wages in the United States to productivity, you see an enormous gulf opening between the two. Median wages have not grown for about 30 years, more or less, mm -hmm. while productivity has increased considerably. So... I argue in my work, document with uh, data, 
statistical techniques, historical work, as well as theory, that this trend cannot be understood without putting automation at the center of it. In particular, if you see, if you look at why is it that median wages haven't grown, it's precisely because groups that have suffered automation, meaning that they have lost jobs to automated algorithms or machines, are the ones that haven't experienced wage growth. In fact, sometimes they have experienced wage declines. So what that means is if we want to build a sort of shared prosperity, we have to grapple with the implications of automation. Now, my work emphasizes that it's not automation per se, but it's the system of technological change that you need to look at. Because automation was always present. Uh, it was rapid in the first half of the 20th century, in the 1950s and 60s. But it wasn't the only thing that companies were doing. So there were other technological changes that increased worker marginal productivity, that enabled new opportunities for workers of all walks of life. And that's what seized over the last several decades. And I think that's what needs to be regained for economic growth to be more shared. Wow, that's a good thesis like uh, statement. Um, as our podcast starts uh, wrapping up, I wanted to ask, what advice do you have for students that are considering an economics research and perhaps some of the toolkits that they might be able to use in their research, whether it be with the uh, AI or something coming up, machine learning perhaps? Well, uh, you know, we live in the age of technology, but, you know, I think good social science, but it's also true for good science in general, is what Edison sort of said about innovation. You know, 1% inspiration, 90%, 99% perspiration. <laughs> you know, with all of the tools available to us, it hasn't changed. You know, I think in my mind, you know, you need to have several ingredients to do good social science. You need to have a really good knowledge of history and the context. You know, you cannot just, you know, sit in an ivory tower and go do, go do good social science. But also, especially in the economic sphere, you need to have the tools. You need to know statistics, modeling, all the data things. And you have another ingredient that I think in my mind is key. You need to have fun. You need to love what you do. I don't think this is something you can do, say, okay, I'm going to be a successful social scientist, but I'm not really enjoying this. No, I think you really need to have fun. And that's a good thing or a bad thing as well, because if you start having too much fun, you do too much of it. But, you know. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have for you. Um, but thank you very much for coming here. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Daniel.